morning, Sydney, and welcome to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. We got some great features coming up for you this week. A story on what's going to happen when the polar ice caps melt. We're going to be talking about the world's biggest giant squid. And we've got a book review on the Tasmanian Devil. So hang around for some great science listening. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. That's right, you're listening to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. We've got some great features coming up for you. Chris has got a story on what's going to happen when the polar ice caps melt. Matt's got a story, um, actually a book review on the Tasmanian Devil, which is not to be confused with the Tasmanian Tiger. And we've got a story on a giant big calamari. So stick around, but first I'm going to pass over to Adam with the news. The island 600 kilometres off the coast of Chile, upon which the Scottish sailor Alexander Selkirk was marooned for four and a half years, has another lonely resident. This time it's a robot. Selkirk's experience was immortalised in the book Robinson Crusoe, but this time the robot is called Arturitu. It is equipped with a microwave frequency grounds-penetrating radar and has been used by the Chilean police to search for buried weapons. Similar devices have been used to look for underground rivers, air pockets and Egyptian tombs, but Arturitu may have found a treasure to dazzle even a pharaoh. Legend tells that in 1715, about six years after Selkirk was rescued, a Spanish sailor buried a treasure on the island because of its secluded location. The bounty is said to have been discovered some years later by a British sailor and reburied elsewhere on the island. The legend goes on to describe the treasure as consisting of over 800 barrels of gold, silver, gems and other valuable items and thought to be worth up to $12 billion. But in order to search 15 metres underground with radar, it is necessary to use a low frequency signal and such a low frequency gives poor resolution. But by using complementary search techniques, such as magnetometry, which measures disturbances in the Earth's magnetic field, it is possible to determine the difference between metals and plastics and even tell individual types of metals apart. It was reported in New Scientist this week that Arturidu's operators believe they have identified the treasure and are so confident in their discovery that they have applied to excavate the site. Perhaps not surprisingly, the Chilean government has suggested that it should have full rights to any treasure found. We all know about the home ground advantage, but what about the home grass advantage? Research published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine reports that play on some grasses is more likely to result in anterior cruciate ligament damage. Most sporting fields are a mixture of two main types of grasses, cooch and ryegrass. Cooch grass has thicker thatching between the grass roots and the soil than ryegrass does. This results in a very strong bond between grass and soil. If a player's cleats are embedded in the grass and they try to pivot on the spot, it is possible for them to do significant damage to their knees. But ryegrass is not ideal either. As ryegrass does not stick well to the soil, a player's cleats are much less effective and it is possible for them to slip, potentially missing a tackle or goal, or even injuring themselves. Former Sydney Swans club doctor, Dr John Orchard, says that players will give a slightly high quality game on cooch because it is less slippery. <laughs> 
The exact proportion of the two depends on climatic conditions of the field surface. For example, the teams competing in the AFL Grand Final, the MCG where the game was played and the Western Eagles home ground of Subiaco Oval consisted primarily of ryegrass from May onwards, but the SCG remains predominantly cooch grass until July. The Times reports that scientists in the US have created a miracle mouse capable of regenerating damaged or lost organs and limbs. The mouse is able to recover from injuries that would kill or permanently disable a normal mouse and is unique in the entire mammal family in its ability to regrow its toes, joints, limbs, tail, kidneys and even its heart. The only organ it can't regrow is its brain. This ability to regenerate is controlled by about a dozen genes. The animals have a higher rate of cell division, so the cells live and die faster and are regenerated more quickly than in a regular mouse. The mice are 18 months old, but since a regular mouse lives two years, it is too soon to say if these super mice will have a prolonged life. Even more remarkably, it was found that when cells from these super mice were injected into regular mice, the regular mice gained the superpowers. Regular mice treated in such a way were able to regenerate damaged tissue for up to six months after the injection. This remarkable ability has been known to exist for a long time in the animal kingdom, but it was previously limited to less complex organisms. Many fish and amphibians, for example, are capable of regrowing internal organs and whole limbs. We mere humans, on the other hand, are only capable of regrowing our liver, skin and blood. A newt can regrow entire limbs including the bone structure, muscles, tendons, blood vessels, nerve networks and even joints when it is injured. It does this by making cells around the tissue revert to stem cells and regrow as required, kind of like reverting back to factory settings. Our inability to regenerate significantly is believed to be an evolutionary trade-off. We forgo the ability to regenerate cells in order to develop highly specialised cells that are needed to maintain a large brain. The remarkable skill is not artificially introduced in the mice. They do not have genes mixed with other animals. The genes required to give the ability to, to regenerate were always there, just waiting to be switched on. Similar genes have been found in humans. This raises the prospect of one day giving humans the ability to regenerate, even if only for a period of a few months after an accident. Thanks for the news, Adam. Don't forget you're listening to Discovery. I'm Jackie Pethoff. And now we've got a book review. Sometimes here at Discovery we delve into the literary world. And Matt, you've been reading a book this week on the Tasmanian Devils. I have indeed. It's uh, called Tasmanian Devil, A Unique and Threatened Animal, written by David Owen and uh, David Pemberton. Uh, Pemberton, sorry. Uh, David Pemberton actually was uh, a pioneering, pioneering researcher into the Tasmanian Devil and has also co-written this book. Now, the story of the Tasmanian tiger is well known around Australia and possibly the world as a prime example of the willful destruction of a unique species. Now, despite its extinction, it remains, from beer logos to government letterheads, a strong image of the island state. However, its diminutive cousin, the far less romantically named Tasmanian Devil, while still living, receives far less attention. Now, a bit of a description of the Tasmanian Devil. They are the largest uh, surviving marsupial carnivore in the world. They have an incredible bite strength, especially considering their, their size, with a large male weighing up to 12 kilograms, which is not huge in comparison to other carnivores around, around the world. Now, by power-to-weight ratio of their bite, they are beaten only by rats and perhaps ants. They are both scavengers and predators and have a wide diet. They'll eat almost all of a dead animal, including all but the largest of their bones. Now, in their book... Tasmanian Devil, a unique and threatened animal, David Owen and David Pemberton seek to raise awareness of the plight of this misunderstood creature. 
Now, surprisingly, the authors claim that this is actually the first book ever published about the Tasmanian devil, which is remarkable given the length of human, uh, European habitation of Tasmania and the unique and curious nature of the Tasmanian devil. Now, as the first book on this topic, it seemingly seeks to cover as many aspects of the devil as possible, including its physical nature and social behaviour, its evolution, the history of how the devil has been perceived by humans, the politics of the Tasmanian devil, as well as the story of the Warner Brothers cartoon character Taz, uh, also how the, the devil has impacted on tourism in Tasmania, and finally, the recent appearance of a mysterious disease that is threatening the very survival of the species. Now, despite the breadth of the material covered in this book, it is surprisingly easy to read and weaves the story of the Tasmanian devil as a narrative rather than a string of disconnected facts. A variety of sources are used, often with large chunks of text inserted from things such as diary entries of early settlers, the pioneering devil researchers, and more recently, sources such as colourful exchanges in the Tasmanian parliament. Now, these sources are woven together as part of a story that gives the book an organic feel rather than placing the reader in the midst of... Um, uh, some, it, well, it places the reader in the midst of an evolving story rather than retelling some static history. Now, it's pitched at the level of an average reader, though the inclusion of a glossary would have been helpful as occasionally some technical words are used without giving a lot of definitions. On the whole, however, the book is accessible and a light read. But the real strength of this book is not so much in the descriptions of the devil itself, but how it uses that as connections between that and, and the wider world and other concepts. Through learning about the evolution, behaviour and ecology of the devil and its surroundings, the reader actually learns a great deal of those topics themselves. For instance, in the chapter 3, Relationships in the Wild, it details, amongst other things, the remarkable similarity between devils and the completely unrelated wolverines of North America and Northern Europe. This is an example of convergent evolution, where similar ecological niches get filled by animals that end up having very similar characteristics, even though they're entirely unrelated. Now, as I've said, this book is structured loosely as a narrative, and throughout there is a foreshadowing of the latest chapter in the devil's story, which is the deadly disease known as devil facial tumour disease, or DFTD. This disease causes tumours to grow around the mouth and face of the devils until they become so large that they restrict feeding and kill the devil through starvation. This disease is apparently very new, only having been observed for the first time in the late 1990s, and only in the last few years in large numbers. However, it is thought to have caused a crash in the number of devils in Tasmania by up to 50%. But significantly, its full effects are unknown, as very little research has actually been conducted on devil populations in the past. So accurate population baselines are unknown. This is one of the recurring themes in this book, just how little we know about devils in the wild. Now, the biggest problem I can see with this book is that it goes to great lengths to point out just how misunderstood the poor devil is. It says that devils in the past have been... Viewed, in, viewed as a solitary, noisy, grumpy, smelly scavengers that fight violently over the carcass with other devils and generally eat everything in its path, including livestock en masse. Now, indeed, the very name Devil was not given out of any sense of irony, but indeed was what was thought to be uh, an apt description um, of its nature and the value of the animal uh, by early settlers. Now, David Owen and David Pemberton attempt to recast the Devil as a timid, shy animal with complex social interactions that perform a valuable service to farmers in keeping their paddocks free from dead and sickly stock. Now, by doing this, these authors appear to accept, or at least reluctantly, that society will only be likely to want to save cute and cuddly animals rather than nasty ones. Hopefully, one day society will want to save all endangered animals without having to dress them in their Sunday best to guarantee some sympathy. 
The Tasmanian Devil, a unique and threatened animal, is a fascinating story that leaves the reader wanting to know more. Although published in, 19, uh, 19, uh, sorry, in 2005, um, this year, the most recent sources quoted um, about the state of devils and this new disease, DFTD, are from 2003. So a couple of years gap there. Now, the book obviously generated enough interest in me that as soon as I finished reading it, I went straight to Google to find out the most up-to-date situation with devils and this disease. Which, for your benefit, the situation is still a mystery, with the causes of the disease and the nature of transmission still unknown. This book is published by Alan and Unwin, and just a reminder, was written by David Owen and David Pemberton, and I'm sure will be available in all good bookstores. I give it five out of six quarks. Wow, five out of six quarks. That sounds pretty impressive, but um, what's a quark? <laughs> uh, it's the, it's the uh, new uh, discovery rating scheme that we've introduced. Ah, oh, there we go. Listening to I Know You Know I Know by Tex Perkins. I'm Jackie Pepper and you're listening to Discovery. Now, recently you might have heard quite a few stories in the news about the recent discoveries and the melting of the polar ice caps. Chris, you've got some more on that for us. Well, I do. I, it's not standard practice on Discovery to bring you stories that everyone else has already covered. We like to go for the stuff that no one's ever heard of before. But I thought this was a good one to talk about a little bit because it has been in the news lately. Um, but it hasn't really been discussed in a way which allows anyone to get a really good grasp of what's going on. So I thought we could spend a couple of minutes talking about this whole melting Arctic polar ice cap thing because it's really important. Now, let's just back up a little bit here. We've been hearing for as long as anyone can remember that temperatures are rising, global warming, we're all bastards and we should stop burning fossil fuels, etc., 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 and we're almost becoming numb to it. But it's only when you start getting really 
serious evidence that things are happening quickly, that people start paying attention. This is one of those things. What I'm talking about is a, a recent report from NASA. This is a NASA study. They got, remember, lots of satellites up there looking down at the Earth going, oh, what's happening over there? And they've been measuring for years the size and the annual growth and shrinkage of the Arctic polar ice cap. This is the bit that sort of goes around the top of the planet around the top of North America, Greenland, across the top of Russia, etc., etc., etc. And it's just solid ice. And it's floating on the water. It's this big lump of frozen water. And when it heats up in summer, it shrinks a bit. When it comes to winter, it grows again. But over time, it's been shrinking. And they've just come out with this report that shows how much it's been shrinking. And it's a lot, lot more than anyone really ever gave it credit. In the order of 10% a decade, 9 or 10% a decade. What this means is that within the century at these rates, within the next, like by the end of this century, it can be gone. We're talking the Arctic, you know, the North Pole, the thing that people trudged across the ice to go and find could be gone. The well, pole will still be there, obviously, but the ice could be gone. Where would Santa live? Well, yeah, good question. He's going to build a whole new workshop. He'll have to get a boat. Santa's Ark. <laughs> and just sort of mixing the whole Bible thing there with the Santa thing, it gets very confusing. But, I mean, this is a big deal. It's not just a big deal from sort of Christmas time mythology. It's a big deal for, you know, it's going to affect us here on this planet. So it's worth thinking for a second about exactly how that's going to affect us. Now, one of the big things that, uh, that everyone talks about when you talk about melting polar ice caps and so on, is the sea levels are going to rise. And if you think about it for a second, I mean, the, the tsunami not that long ago that, that washed away entire coastal regions of sort of, uh, you know, equatorial uh, Southeast Asia, that was, you know, an increase in average sea level of a metre or two. You know, it came in a big wave, sure, but the damage that, that went on inland was from the rising sea levels. And people talk about rising sea levels to do with melting polar ice caps of roughly that level. So it's a significant thing. We're talking entire coastal regions and cities underwater here. It's a big deal. But the interesting thing is that it's not actually the polar ice cap, the Arctic ice cap melting, that's going to rise the sea levels. Many hundreds of years ago, Archimedes figured this one out, that if you've got a glass of water with a chunk of ice in it, the water level doesn't rise as the ice melts. It stays the same. That's the cool thing, is that the, the amount of water that's displaced to keep the ice afloat is exactly the same as the volume of water in the ice when it melts. Anyway, point is, melt the Arctic, sea levels won't rise. But if you are melting the Arctic because the temperature of the, the atmosphere has gone up, then presumably you're melting other things as well. Bloody great glaciers. Any ice that's sitting on solid Earth which then melts and runs off into the oceans, is going to increase the water levels by a non-trivial amount. In particular, if the Arctic's melting, then probably the Antarctic is melting as well. And the Antarctic is a continent. It's a bloody great chunk of rock covered in ice. And so, if it's melting, then sea levels are rising. So what you're saying is ice that's sitting there in the water by itself melting doesn't rise the le water levels, but ice that's on land, if that starts to melt that's when the water levels are going to go up. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. So it's not that the fact that the Arctic's melting is a problem for sea levels per se. But if you do have bloody great chunks of ice breaking off the Arctic, floating down into shipping lanes, that's a problem too. So that's one big problem, is global warming in general is going to make the sea levels rise. But it's not just that. 
if you think about entire ecosystems which depend on the ice up there, anything from you know little planktony things that live down underneath the ice shelf, through to polar bears which hunt around on the ice shelf, take away that ice shelf and those entire ecosystems can disappear. We're talking about polar bears, large groups of seals going extinct in the next 50 years simply because there's nowhere for them to be anymore. There are populations of people who live along the, uh, the Arctic coast who stand to completely lose their livelihoods. This is a big deal. So what we're witnessing here, what we've just seen in this NASA report, is evidence of very fast climate change. So this is one of the ones that you can't ignore anymore. The people out there who are saying, oh, climate change, we don't have any evidence for that. It's just we're making it up. Get back in your four-wheel drive. You'll be fine. This is evidence, people. It's right there. It's on the front page. We've got to pay attention to it. So that's why I thought this was a worth, you know, worth bringing up here on Discovery. What about, um, what about the people, and it's, it's a somewhat um, factual claim, that there, I mean, there are fluctuations. If we look at the, the history of the Earth, there's been fluctuations in, in temperature and all, all kinds of climate. Is there a definitive way to say, you know, this is, this is, what, this is our fault, this isn't natural, it's, it's too fast, or... Is this clear well, enough? It's, I, I think you can you can always make the argument that, well, things change. Things have changed over the years. We've had ice ages. We've had anti-ice ages, whatever the opposite of an ice age is. Things have got really hot. Melt age. Melt age. <laughs> but what we are seeing at the moment are levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases which we have produced, which are at levels which have never been seen on the planet before. These have been measured. So we're in the middle of an experiment which has never been run. No one knows what's going to happen. But what seems to be happening at the moment is that things are warming up and things are changing. And that's something you can't really ignore. Well, thanks, Chris, for bringing us that important environmental issue. You're listening to Discovery. Did you know the ears of a cricket are located on its front legs just below the knee? Discovery, the radio show that tackles the big issues in science and quite a few sub-microscopic ones as well. Discovery delves deep into what makes the world tick, bringing you the latest, greatest, and weirdest in science from around the world. We don't care if your ears are on your front legs, as long as you tune into Discovery, heard on community radio across Australia by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Yeah. And now we've got some news that didn't quite make the news tonight. Over to you, Adam. Thank you. It was announced last week that scientists had taken the first ever images of a live, fully grown giant squid in its natural habitat. They managed to catch the historic images by dropping a baited line from a research vessel down 900 metres below the surface of the ocean, mounting a camera and a strobe light one and a half metres above the bait, taking a photo every 30 seconds. The animal that they took was trapped on the line for about four hours, allowing the researchers to collect over 500 images. It was only a little critter though, it only measured about 8 metres in total length. But when it finally freed itself from the bait, it left behind 1.5 metres of tentacle that the scientists retrieved for genetic analysis. These are, this, is, this is some big squid. That's, huge. That's a little squid. 8 metres is a baby. The big ones are about the size of a bus. So about <laughs> 18 to 20 metres. How, how many, how many bus-sized squids have been, have been found? Washed up on the beach? or is this Hundreds. Hundreds. Hundreds have been found washed up on the Can beach. Can you imagine is... just wandering along the beach and go, oh, look, it's a shell. Oh, my God, it's a bus-sized squid. Like, <laughs> it just, no, you're making this up. Well, quite often they think they're whales at first because they are about the size of the whales that attack them. Damn. And occasionally they've been known to attack. But hang on, look, I mean, you go out whale watching, right? Everyone likes whales. Whales are nice and friendly. Why don't we know more about these things? Why don't we see more of these big Well, the main reasons squid? we don't see these stupid big squids is because they're... Um, 
their, their resp respiratory system works well at deep pressures. So when they come up to the surface, they can't breathe and they can actually suffocate. So where we find these squid washed up is usually where warm water and cold water are coinciding because they like to live in the cold water, but if they accidentally bump into the warm water, obviously the density of warm water is less. So these guys, their, their temperature starts, their temperature changes, their pressure inside them changes, and they start to rise to the surface where the warmer is water still, mm. and they rise higher and the yes. water is warmer still. Yeah. And pretty soon they find themselves unable to breathe because they have three hearts and have very high pressure blood in order to now, this is pump Dr. the oxygen Who, around, but they just can't do it. Doctor Who has three hearts. You're, you're getting confused. <laughs> I, I'll have to take you over. Doctor Who also has three hearts, I would assume. Um, so, I'm yeah. doing my best to throw you here. Is it, is it working? <laughs> yeah, a little. <laughs> so what, what, what are the, like, the biggest ones? Like, is okay. it bigger than a bus? They're, they're up to 20 metres, but they've been reported as being up to 175 feet long, which is about Damn. 60 metres. Nothing like that's ever been captured. That's just That incident was a sailor in World War II who walked from one end of his ship to the other end of his ship and saw he was still looking at the same squid. <laughs> that's, that's just bonkers. That um, but these things, they're very squid are very, very nasty, very aggressive animals, and they have been known to attack ships and humans. Seriously? So little ones have attacked humans. No one's ever been attacked by a big one, and at least no one's ever lived to talk about it. Well, I mean, it's the size of a bus. Like, if you get hit by a bus, you're not going to live. You, yeah, it's going to hurt. If you get hit by a bus with tentacles, you're not going to live. But, um, yeah, these guys, they've been known to attack ships, but they generally come off second best because their suckers are designed to tear into flesh, and they don't, mm. when they suck onto to steel... Hang on, sorry. Suckers are designed... To, no, suckers are like little suction cups. Ah, but these aren't suction cap suckers. These are suction cap suckers with serrated edges and with dirty great big fangs on ah. them. So they bite, and then they suck. Ah. But unfortunately on steel, they don't bite so well, and so these squid, when they attack a ship, the ship keeps sailing along, and the squid generally get slide back towards the stern, where they're making, making sort of a <laughs> sound, all hurting until all of a sudden it reaches the propeller, and you have Ooh. about a ton of calamari. Oh, that'll teach them. <laughs> that's that's, that's <laughs> just thank God they're not on land. Yes. This week on Discovery, we're produced in 2SER Sydney. This week, Chris Stewart produced the show. We also go out nationally via the Community Broadcasting Network. You can contact us on discovery at 2SER.com. We'd love to hear from you. This week in the studio, we had Chris Stewart, Matt Francis, Adam Richardson, and myself, Jackie Perfer. So we'll see you next week at the same time for another instalment of Discovery. Go on, let's go.